0: going on to work for Google. In 2006, he helped launch the real-time information network Twitter. Most recently, Stone co-founded the Obvious Corporation that focuses on building systems that help people work together to improve the world. Biz has been named Nerd of the Year by GQ, (laughs) one of the most influential people in the world by Time Magazine, Entrepreneur of the Decade by Inc. Magazine, and one of the Vanity Affair's top ten most influential people of the information age. As an advocate for selflessness, Stone insists that people follow a selfless path in order to deliver deeper meaning to their work. He gives back through the biz of Lydia Stone Foundation, which supports education and conservation in California. He also serves as founding director of Convergis, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit designed to leverage the collective power of several institutions in order to accelerate positive social change. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this
1: Heard me until I got here that although you're all public relations professionals, you're all in different fields. So, so this is kind of the primordial ooze of, of creativity right here because um, that cross uh, discipline networking really helps fuel non-linear thinking which I think is hugely important um, when approaching any challenge or any problem. So uh, I'm, I'm honored to be invited. And thank you again, and a special thank you um, also to Jerry Corbett for um, taking so much time um, backstage chatting with me. And also, um, I know it's a team effort to put together an event like this that um, seems effortless. So thank you to him, thank you to everyone who put this together. They deserve a big round of applause. So today I was thinking, I was sort of cramming last night, um, because uh, I got back to New York late last night, and then this morning I woke up at 5am with my 10-month-old, because Livia and I sponsored a Goblin jamboree that I was at all morning, um, so to me it's like the end of the day, but... That's good. Good, That's good. cocktails after. Anyway, what I want to talk about is a little bit more high level today. I want to talk about. I just want to. I want to tell a bunch of stories, and if um, if you don't find them uh, educational, I hope you'll at least find them amusing. I want to talk about uh, failure and its ultimate success, and I want to talk about opportunity, creativity, change, altruism, and um, and. To what I was referring to earlier in terms of cramming last night, I want to talk a little bit about what's next. Um, I, didn't, I didn't realize that the, uh, the theme of today's conference was the future is now, or the future starts now, and uh, I think that, that's appropriate for what I want to sort of touch on, but I also want to leave time for Q&A after. So, um, so we'll get started. Uh, I, I want to show you this picture. That was taken thirty seconds after I got married. I looked like the happiest guy in the world. My wife looks like she made the biggest mistake. This body language is just indisputable. And, uh, I think I won her over though because I uh, I somehow managed to come up with this quote from this guy, uh, Ben Franklin, and uh, he said, "Perhaps the history of the errors of mankind, all things considered, is more valuable and interesting." than that of their discoveries. And I think it worked because um, we're, we're still very happily married, as far as I know. <laughs> and uh, so, so on the subject of um, failure, or, or errors, going to it, uh, I wanna talk about um, a story that isn't, it's not even my story, it's, uh, it's from a film uh, from the 80s, a German film from the 80s by Wim Wenders, uh, don't watch the um, the remake of Nicolas Cage, that's, that's terrible. But the, the original film, and it's about a lot of things, but really quickly, it's about these two immortal beings that watch over Berlin, and they, they've been there since before there were people there, and their goal is to kind of uh, make sure that things uh, go along as they're supposed to go along. And the thing is, they can't, no one can see them, and they can't interact with other people. And one of these two angels, um, decides that he wants to, uh, he wants to know, he he falls in love with this circus trapeze artist. It's it's a bit of an art show. And and he falls in love with this circus trapeze artist and he starts thinking about it and he he wants, he wants to know what it would feel like to hold a hot cup of coffee in his hands. He he wants to know what it would be like to taste food. He wants to know what it would be like to to kiss a woman. He wants to know what it would be like to to live and to do all these things that he can't do. So he tells his, his buddy Angel, hey, I'm gonna announce, uh, renounce my immortality now I I'm fall to earth as a as a mortal man. So I can do all these things. And the other guy says, "Are like, you crazy? You're gonna, you're, you're gonna die like everybody else. You, you'll have a limited amount of time." And, and uh, he says, "I know, I, but I really want to do these things." So he does it and he falls to earth and. Um, he also happens like next, he's naked, but next to him is like um, his golden armor, which I, I think they just wrote in so that uh, he'd have something to pawn so he could get clothes. So he ends um, the clothes. But the point is, the, the story that I took away from this, watching this film, uh, and, and, it's a, and it's a story that I often um, refer to young people who are just starting out thinking about should. So I do a startup, so I you know things feel like they're headed in the really right direction, but I'm not sure. And I I realized just in, in watching this movie um, that in order to succeed spectacularly, you need to be willing to fail spectacularly. So in this case, he he needed to be willing to die to achieve his goal. I don't advocate going that far, but um, but you really need to be willing to, to just accept that humiliation and that ultimate failure. And that's part, of a, that's part of that entrepreneurial spirit. And you don't necessarily need to be an entrepreneur to have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, that willingness to go all the way, um, even, even if it means um, utter failure. Uh, it just, it's the only way you're gonna achieve that spectacular success. Uh, so failure and success, I think, go very much hand in hand. Okay, so now I want to talk about my childhood. And um, although this looks like a picture of a bunch of naked dudes in the field, it actually represents my childhood. Um, and I, I think I, I feel like I should explain that. Um, this is an image of um, a bunch of uh, Native Americans. Playing a game that they invented called The drawing, and I got the picture off Wikipedia, so we know it's legit. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so let me explain how, how, what's going on with this program. Um, or this drawing. When I was little, uh, my mom put me in this program called Boy Rangers, and it's not Boy Scouts. It's kind of like this weird. Like before Boy Scouts, they had this thing called Boy Rangers. It no longer exists. In fact, I think my chapter was the last when I graduated. They closed it down. I don't know, but and it's a little non-PC too. They, we, we were um, modeled after different Native American tribes, and uh, I was I was chief of the Blackfoot tribe. And um, because my mom put me in this program, I never went into. Uh, any kind of like peewee football or little league or played soccer, or any of these things. Instead, I had to you know, advance from papoose to warrior by learning feats of strength and tying knots <laughs> and hanging wampum. I didn't like it, and I had to do this thing for like years. Uh, and uh, and so I, I did that, and then, and then when I got to high school, I thought, well, you know, I'm pretty naturally athletic, and I want to be. I think it would be a good idea to be on a sports team, because it seems like if you're on a sports team, you get pretty well integrated into high school. So, I decided I would try to try out for one of the teams, or any of the teams, or all of the teams. And when I got to the basketball court, for example, there's just all these lines, and I was so intimidated by the rules. I didn't know any of the rules, and um, and so you know, baseball, forget about it. That's like some kind of religion within a rules. <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, I just held back. And, and what coach wanted to of course the coach doesn't know what there like, uh, I don't do it. <laughs> so, I, uh, I did a little research, and I found that there was a sport that my high school didn't offer, and it was lacrosse. Uh, and And so I asked the administration if I Um, If I can find enough boys and a coach, can I start a a boys lacrosse team at the high school? And they were like, yeah, sure, if you can do that, fine. And I was able to do it. So um, what I ended up doing was uh, creating a team, which was called a club team at first. And uh, I ended up being really good at lacrosse. My reasoning was, if everyone was clueless about how to play lacrosse, then then I then it was a level playing field, so to speak, and I was totally comfortable playing it, and I was actually ended up being good at it. And just like I was chief of the Blackfoot Indian tribe, they elected me captain of the lacrosse team. So I got, um, I got exactly what I wanted to, to do, which was get on a sports team, and uh, two things did occur to me later. One, I probably could have just learned the rules of one of the other sports. Um, but that's the bigger thing. Uh, And the big takeaway for me upon reflection that I I actually didn't realize I carried all the way through into my career, and the the lesson learned was that um, opportunity can be manufactured. So a lot of people, you know, you you think about the definition of opportunity, it's a set of circumstances that come together at the right time, um, and then you sort of pounce on them. But those circumstances can be arranged by you. So that you can counsel them, and and so I did that uh, with the lacrosse team. But then I can, now I keep that in mind all the time. What sort of circumstances can I prearrange and then take advantage of? So that that is a, a, a key lesson learned for me that I, I always try to think about um, whenever challenges or opportunities or uh, problems arise. Um, so after high school, I uh, went into college. I went to college for a little while. Um, it I wasn't really for me, but I um, I ended up getting a side job at this publishing company called Little Brown Company. And it was on Beacon Hill in Boston. It was in a cool old mansion, and I, my side job was just moving these heavy boxes from the attic down to the lobby. And uh, this was at a time when the art department, uh, the department that d- designed all the book covers for the books being published by Little Brown. They were just switching over from staff machines and spray glue and Xacto and knives and amberlite and all this other stuff to um, to Macs, and I had grown up using Macintosh computers. My friend Mark had one, and we uh, we were playing games on it. And then when Mac Paint came out, I was using that because I started out as an artist and I went to school, um, I went to college on an art scholarship, and so I was I was using Macs early. Uh, so one day when the the whole art department went out to lunch, I snuck up to one of the workstations and I designed, I looked at one of the transmittals for a cover that hadn't been designed yet and I I designed the cover and I printed it out and I matted it up and I slipped it into the others to go off for approval uh, by sales editorial in New York. And when the (laughs) art director came back from that meeting, he said, we designed this book cover because it got chosen. I said, me. I said, the box did. (laughs) Um, and so he ended up offering me a job as a, as a designer and uh, I was thinking to myself, well don't people, don't people finish college so they can then go get a job like this? So why don't I just take the job? So I dropped out of college and took the job. I was also thinking maybe I could be like an apprenticeship. So I go in the first day of work, I show up, I go to the art director's office and he's sitting at his desk and he sort of beckons me in. He doesn't, he doesn't say a word. Back me the I go up to his desk. He reaches behind him without even looking, takes out a book of sample colors, you know, the little swatches, and he puts it down. And he starts flipping through to like the browns and the slightly lighter, multi colored browns. And he goes down and he tears one out perforated. and puts his finger on, on his desk and he slides it slowly across to me. And he says, that's how I take my coffee. Uh, I was like, oh my God, I dropped out of college for this, I had a scholarship. And, and then he said, I'm kidding. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> but it would have been a really good test. If I could have matched that color, like, with the, you know, I thought you donuts with the cream, it would have been great. Um, anyways, he turned out to be a great guy, and I ended up being, uh, I ended up doing what I really wanted to do, which was Apprentice. I, I worked with him every day. Upon reflection, I realized he was totally clueless on the, on the Mac and Photoshop and everything. I think he sort of was hoping, like, will you just do this for me? But it didn't matter. I learned, uh, I learned so much um, working with him and sort of studying him and, uh, and, and then uh, and the big thing that I learned uh, working with him designing all these book jackets was that uh, creativity is a renewable resource. No, no matter what, there's always another jacket design that I can try if, if sales editorial didn't like the one. And you know, so many of the other designers were like, oh, they're stupid, this is a great design. They have no sense of aesthetic. But for me, uh, the goal was create an award-winning design for designers that also solves what the uh, sales and editorial team wanted. And so I was successful at that, and, and I really loved it. And, uh, and I did win some awards, and, and, and I was happy in that career. And then what happened was, uh, Little Brown moved, decided to move his headquarters all to New York, for the time are And uh, this art director guy, Steve Snyder, had filled my head with all these stories of his early days as a freelance designer about how he got all this work. And it was, and he was so successful doing it and everything, and he had taken the job because he had a family. And so when they moved to New York, I thought, well, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a, uh, I'm going to start my own studio. So I started my own design studio, and uh, I quickly realized that I couldn't just do book covers, because that wasn't going to be enough work. So uh, I taught myself web design and started doing websites and, and, and things
0: for different, different, all kinds of different groups, colleges, organizations, anything,
1: everybody, I would do it for anybody. And then, um, by this time, my friends had graduated college and then gone into consulting and they hated it, so they saw that I was doing web design and they said, hey, we should start a web company. It was early enough then that it was like, the idea of just starting a web company. That was what we were gonna do, a web company. Uh, So in 1999, we started this company called Zanga, X-A-N-G, not Zanga, Zanga. And uh, it was basically one of the first web blogging communities, and it was a rival to this other company called Blogger. And uh, we were doing a lot of the same things. Um, and after a little while, I ended up um, uh, I ended up doing my own thing. I, I worked at Zagg for a little while, but then I um, I just became obsessed with this idea of the democratization of information and what all this blogging and everything was going to do for people. And so I ended up uh, writing a couple of uh, Books about the subject, and I even ended up at Wellesley College for a little while, um, doing some teaching. But uh, I had this idea, um, which I thought, which I eventually thought was a stupid idea, and screwed away, was to was to um, start a social network just for colleges. <laughs> uh, it was two thousand two. Stupid idea. Um, so I fell on that, and um, and. Uh, I got invited by Google, um, which was which was wild because I didn't even have a college degree. It turned out that my future co-founder of Twitter, Evan Williams, uh, had pulled all kinds of strings to get me a job at Google, um, and and uh, and so I, I, I moved out to California a, a decade or so ago, and I, I worked at Google, and um, and then I, I started. I started there pre-IPO, and then they IPO'd, and then, and then Evan Williams left to start a new company. And, um, and, I, and then I had some soul searching to do, because I really moved out there to work with Evan, because that whole time that I was working on Zang, and he was working at Blogger, we knew each other from afar, we had admired each other's work, and I really moved out to here to work with him, not necessarily work at Google. So I quit Google, and I followed him uh, to this startup called Odeo. And the startup was based on an idea that we had had on a car ride home one night where I... Well, I won't get into the technical specifics, but I, I thought uh, this, these new things called iPods were coming out, and I, and I had this idea for uh, ways that people could uh, create their own radio programs and, uh, and send them along to uh, iPods, so and it was called podcasting. And, uh, and we decided to make a podcasting uh, company. And, so we did, it was called Odeo, and we didn't like doing podcasting. We thought it was, uh, we got shy around a microphone, and, we, and it turns out making good audio is hard. You have to edit it and do a good job, and some geek rambling in his basement for an hour and a half is terrible listening. So we were making this company, but it wasn't really going far. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't doing anything. It taught me a lesson that you really have to be emotionally invested in what you're doing in order for it to succeed. Evan, to his credit, had this brilliant idea to uh, to just say, you know what, um, why don't we take a core group, keep Odeo going, and the rest of you guys pair up and um, just do something that you want to do. And I had become really good friends with this guy named Jack Dorsey, who we hired as an engineer at Odeo. And we had started doing some side projects together anyway, but we weren't liking uh, our main job. And so we quickly paired up and we built a prototype of Twitter in two weeks. We showed it to our uh, colleagues and they were underwhelmed. Uh, they thought it was lame. Um, but that didn't stop us because we were really excited about the potential. We, 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 had, we had envisioned Twitter working over SMS. That's where we got the 140 characters because uh, the international limit on all phones for, for texting is 160 characters. And we, we standardized on 140 because we wanted to leave room for the author's name. Uh, to be pre-pended to the tweets so that tweets could be written and read in their entirety across this lowest common denominator technology, which was available on all phones. All five billion mobile phones around the planet had this technology. Therefore, we could build a new information network on top of it. And then we added the web, which made it an even wider global, uh, the concept of a wider global use. And everyone just thought it was a terrible idea. And um, what happened was very early on, we. Fun things happen. Like uh, one early prototype, during the prototyping phase, my wife and I decided to um, buy a tiny little house in Berkeley and I had watched that Bob Beal at this old house as a kid to think that I could do some home improvement and and I knew that if you ripped up all the wall-to-wall carpeting you would expose the beautiful wood underneath.
0: There was no beautiful
1: wood. and I, and I was halfway through and I was sweating, it was a heat wave, and my phone buzzed in my pocket, and, and it was Evan. And his tweet said, sipping Pinot Noir after a massage in Napa Valley. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh my god, the, the incongruence of these two things is making me laugh. So I was laughing out loud, and I thought to myself, I'm having joy. I'm, 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 I'm filled with joy working on this thing. The main critique of Twitter at the time was Twitter is not useful, to which Evan replied, "Well, neither is ice cream. Should we ban ice cream?" Also, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what kept us going, and that really, really resonated because um, what happened later on was um, we went to this—the uh, the real watershed moment, aside from this fun stuff—the real watershed moment was there was 25,000, maybe 50,000 early adopters on Twitter, mostly Bay Area. And, we went to this thing called South by Southwest. Uh, was a festival in Austin, Texas. The first part of it was for nerds. And yeah. we went to that. And uh, there was a guy at a bar, and he tweeted out, um, this, this place is too crowded for networking. I'm going to go to this other quiet place. And in the eight minutes it took me to walk over there, the place was filled to capacity, and there was a line out the door, so it was playing for the backfire. But <laughs> what it made me realize was, oh my god, in eight minutes, all of these people convened in this one area, it it made me think about a flock of birds, the idea uh, of a flock of birds uh, moving around an object in flight. Um, It looks so choreographed and so complicated, and yet it's not. It's rudimentary information being exchanged among individuals in real time that allows the many to suddenly become one and then become many And while it's prevalent in nature, I never, I couldn't think of any technology that allowed for this in humanity. And that's when the hair kind of stood up on the back of my neck and I realized we had invented a new information network, a new form of communication. We went back two days later and actually formed Twitter Incorporated. And, and, and from that point on, we started getting mentioned almost with every, um, every big event that started to happen around the world. So, earthquakes. Um, Tweet-ups were being formed to raise money for charities and and, and all of these big things were happening around the world. And and then, uh, you know, in the Middle East and when the Arab Springs uh, happened, and all of this stuff, Twitter started getting involved in all of these things um, as a technology platform. And the big lesson that I learned from that um, was that uh, if we were to be a triumph, Uh, that we were not to just be a triumph of technology. Uh, Twitter was going to be a triumph of humanity. And it really didn't matter how many servers we had or how fancy our algorithms were. It only mattered that people uh, were basically good and if we give them the right tools, they'll prove it to you every day. And that was the really big takeaway for us. And that's what got us up every morning to work on Twitter, was that it wasn't about us. It was about uh, people doing amazing things all around the world um, not just with Twitter, but with social media in general. And that was an amazing key learning um, from, from Twitter. So, now I'm going to revisit my childhood again. This is me as a professional kid. Uh, uh, it's funny that I had a suit then and I don't have a suit now. I'm, get a suit. I'm going to a wedding in November and see, see if I can get a suit. Um, so, when I was a kid, I thought that
0: being a good person was something that you were just supposed to do. So if someone was outside of a store collecting
1: money to to help uh, alleviate poverty in some area, you were just supposed to give them what you had because that was part of being a person. And I never, I never thought uh, that anyone was measuring whether or not um, that behavior was having any kind of impact. In fact, I thought the opposite. I thought that it was an unsolvable problem and that people would just, you were just supposed to give to it and it was never gonna, never get fixed. And it was just part of being a person. And then I started working with a bunch of different organizations, but one in particular that really highlighted something for me. And that was um, Product Red. The people at Product Red told me about um, this, this, uh, this program that they have, uh, where they um, they give out these retroviral pills for people who have HIV in Africa, and um, when you take these pills, it, for about three months, um, you go from basically death's door uh, to healthy and vibrant again. It's amazing, and this is an image, actually, of an 11-month-old girl, um, same age as Basically the same age as my boy, um, and this is her nine days after being treated with the pills, and which are like forty cents a day, and um, and then the thing that it, the thing that they taught me was that as they're as they're treating these um, these folks that have HIV, and they bring they call this the Lazarus effect because of the because of the transformation, and. What happens is more than just one individual being, becoming healthy, what happens is, kids go back to school, um, moms and dads go back to work, or being moms, you know, teachers go back to work, and an entire uh, geoeconomic area gets stabilized. And then they go into the next unstable area, and they start treating it, and so on and so forth. And it actually has a real measurable impact on a large swath of of, of, of across a large swath of people. And that's when I realized, oh, and by the way, this is um, the same girl now, she's five years <laughs> old um, it,
0: it just sort of took me from being a kid and thinking you were just supposed to do stuff to realizing that um,
1: there is compound impact in altruism, just like there's compound interest in a bank account. Like. If you put forty bucks in when you're, you know, eight years old, if you put that into a bank account that's compound interest monthly, you'll have forty million dollars when you're forty. You can have a great midlife crisis. <laughs> so the idea that uh, you, the, so many people have the wrong idea about, about philanthropy or about or about giving back, they think that they have to wait until they're comfortable and and and, uh, and to, in order to be able to sort of throw money at a problem. But the the opposite is true. The, the earlier you get involved helping people, whether it's through volunteering your time or giving a little bit of money to to things, um, the more impact you're going to end up having over time. And I think this is particularly true nowadays with um, companies and organizations. When they they attach themselves to meaningful causes uh, and meaningful, uh, just meaningful causes around the world, um, they they tell an increasingly savvy uh, consumer that they care about something. And, they, and that consumer then chooses that product because they want to choose something that's meaningful and impactful. They want to know that they're, they're doing something uh, meaningful in the world simply by making that choice. So I think that I actually think that uh, philanthropy is the future of marketing. Uh, and, and that we'll see budgets uh, moving towards doing good things, at least you know, 75% of the budget, save 25% to make a whole big deal about how you did that great thing. Um, nevertheless, I think that we're gonna see that because it's about storytelling and it's about people and it's about doing meaningful, impactful things in the world. So that was a huge lesson learned for me and and, and at Twitter we actually hired a, a corporate social responsibility person three years before we hired a first salesperson. So we decided that we would build that into the very culture of the company. Okay, so uh, I want to leave time for Q&A. I don't, I don't know how we're doing, but I want to leave plenty of time for Q&A. Um, so now I want, to, I want to sort of talk about uh, what's next. Uh, when when you know, the biggest search engine company in the world, the biggest social network company in the world, and, and Twitter uh, are all saying we are going to connect, all seven billion people in the world to each other and to unlimited amounts of information. I say, I believe you, what do we do now? Uh, And it was Albert Einstein that famously said, information is not knowledge. So just having access to unlimited information is not necessarily going to make us smarter or going to allow us to do anything more important. What we have to do is we have to be able to uh, Understand that information, comprehend that information. We need to we, when we when we go on the web, we need to, that time spent on the web needs to be spent looking at relevant information that can help us make better choices and do more important things. There's sort of a there's sort of a next phase of the internet where the first phase was all about okay, let's build the democratization of information. Great. Uh, now, how do we get information to transmute into understanding? And then into action. It's sort of an alchemical equation, and that's that's the question that uh, I, my new company, Obvious, uh, and I and the team and I are trying to answer. What's next? How do we how do we make uh, a world in which the right information gets to the right people in the at the right time, such that they can do something about it and make the world a better place? And um, and and. and and one of our uh, core tenets of our business is uh, essentially that um, not just the pe- not just what I said earlier that, that people are basically good and you give, if you give them the right tools, they'll prove it to you on a daily basis, but we wanna build systems that help people work together to make the world a better place. And essentially what we wanna do is is help to redefine the success metrics of capitalism such that they uh, such that they include three things: uh, financial success, uh, good you know good impact impactful success, and also uh, joy. And I think that the new definition of success should be these three things, or at least we should aspire to those three things. And and if we do that, uh, I think we're going to have um, not just a, a, a better world to live in but we're all going to have more fun and work isn't going to be work it's going to be play So thank you very much for your time and let's look forward towards tomorrow